Hi everyone, I'm Steve and welcome to the Friday show on the 9320 pod. I'm taking over hosting duties today simply for a laugh and I'm chuffed to say that I'll be joined by the show's usual host, Asan. It's kind of like when Liam and Noel switch guitars and the mic on top of the pops, but far less cool. <laughs> anyway, without further ado, how goes it, Asan? Are you well, sir? Uh, it goes really well, man. Thanks for hosting. My pleasure, as always. So we'll move on and start immediately with a bit of a strange week for City. Um, a, a terrific win against Chelsea last weekend, followed by an underwhelming result and performance against Basel when nothing really kind of rested on it or did it. We'll we'll come to that. Um, let's start with the Chelsea game. Just speaking generally throughout the course of this season, do City get the credit they deserve when we dismantle top six sides? Or is it always the case in the media where the other teams were poor and deserving of criticism? It's hard not to feel like this season everybody has been poor or certainly the the narrative seems to generally be built around the losing team's manager and their tactics as opposed to to what city have done um i i think if i'm if i'm being really honest i i i personally was really really surprised by the reaction to the way chelsea played and the focus on their tactics and i ended up by the time we got to Wednesday, having a certain amount of sympathy for for Conte. Because really? I think, yeah, because, I, you know, what he said after the game is sort of true, right? He said, to paraphrase him, he basically said to the media, hang on, two days ago, you panned Arsenal for being too open and being slapped by City. And now you're panning me for not being open and not getting slapped by City. Um, Yeah, I mean, they were coming off the back of a bad result at Old Trafford and a bad performance as well. So it it really didn't, their tactics didn't surprise me. Um, Our performance didn't surprise me, but, and the media's reaction didn't surprise me. But whether you're asking me whether it's fair that the media sort of, focus on the negatives of the of the losing side. I don't think it's fair. And the reason that I don't think it's fair is because City are breaking records that have been held for a very long time. Whether those records are, are, are consequential or inconsequential, if a side is consistently breaking records, then at a certain moment, you have to acknowledge their supremacy. And I yeah. think that what's happened, weirdly enough, is that in the early part of the season when we were flying like that, people did acknowledge the supremacy because it there wasn't really any context to it. It was just a case of City have started the season and they're flying. I think now the context is actually that under the surface, the concern is that City are going to dominate. And I've heard this on in media outlets and in other podcasts. So I know that this conversation is beginning to be had. Neutrals, people who support other teams are afraid that City are going to dominate this league for for years to come. That For as long as Guardiola's there, it's going to be very difficult for anybody to get close to us. And I think as a consequence of that, they, they almost don't want to acknowledge the supremacy now. They'd rather focus on the fact that, you know, mm. Conte's 
struggling at Chelsea and will be replaced in the summer or Wenger struggling at Arsenal and he'll be replaced in the summer. Um, because I feel that that narrative, it, it basically allows people to write about City without acknowledging the supremacy and also what the supremacy this season means for next season and maybe the season after. Does that all make sense? It does. I, I agree with, with much of it as well. I mean, I've got a, a few things to say on this issue. Firstly, I mean, I, I write about City once a week for a betting website and I have to find different ways to a, kind of acknowledge the brilliance of the side. And, you know, even as a, as a blue, writing about how extraordinary my team is, that gets somewhat one-dimensional after, you know, so many weeks. Um, so I can actually, you know, I do have sympathy for the media in that regard. Um, I'll also say that it's quite frustrating that the two games which really brought this issue to the fore was Arsenal and Chelsea, which were the two games out of all of them where there was genuine substance to, you know, warranting criticism for the losing side rather than praise for the winning side. You know, it really was a case of Arsenal are in crisis right now and this was uh, this compounded it, you know, that their performances against City compounded their crisis. So justifiably, the media concentrated on that. Uh, and Chelsea, I do disagree with you a touch on their approach. I, I think, yes, by all means, take a, a defensive, cautious approach against City, but I think they, they went to such extremities uh, and they showed an absolute putity of amb- ambition uh, when in possession. You know, when you're in possession, it doesn't matter who your opponents are. You're the one with the ball. What they did with it was precisely nothing. Don't you so, think, though, that... Sorry, I just want to ask you one question on that, though. Don't you think, though, that when you set a team up in the way that, that Conte did against City, the way that Mourinho often does in big games, as a coach, you're effectively acknowledging that if the opposition score the first goal, your game's done. Because you're not going to change your plan because the reason you set out to play in that way is because you know the opening up will end well, up with you taking a hiding. You know, I, I slightly disagreed with you, you know, at the start. I totally disagree with that point, mate, because if you go a goal down against any side in the world, it's your obligation to open up. You Because, you know, what's the point? What is the point of just keeping it as it is, you know? Um, I can understand maybe kind of remaining cautious, say you concede after 15 minutes, remaining cautious until the hour mark and then start to gradually open up. I can see the logic in that. But in fact, at Chelsea, at no stage, apart from right at the end where they actually committed three men in the box, showed any ambition at all, you have to say, well, what is the point? You are essentially just falling on your sword. You're admitting defeat. You're, you're kind of accepting it. Can I so, play devil's advocate for one moment? Mm. Right? Moses went through, and if Moses scores that, the the chance that he has, yeah. which if, if he's a much better player, or, if, you know, there's a lot of players in the Chelsea squad who in that position are burying that, yeah? Yeah. It's a completely different conversation. And I think that, although I acknowledge everything that you've said there, and I, I, w- I would, from a personal point of view, I agree with it in the sense that I do agree with the idea that You've cut. You know, if you if you're if you're a football manager and you're managing a football team, and you, you know, even though you know that there will be teams that will be much better than you, I think you're right. You do sort of have an obligation to at least try. And there is that yeah. argument that well, after they went a goal down, they didn't really try. But then 
that's I think that that's where maybe there needs to be a bit of nuance between the idea of trying because they the the tactics that led to Moses' chance are exactly the same tactics that you see in the 70th minute when there's that clip doing the rounds when everybody's going that's just awful they've down tools yeah whereas mm. I'm watching that little clip and sort of thinking, well, what if Conte's told them, don't, whatever you do, don't press. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was, unquestionably, that was the case. Um, And possibly the same could go for Arsenal too, with, you know, Neville's kind of castigation of uh, their midfield for walking around. Um, So, yeah, I I, I agree with that, that that was definitely imposed upon the players. Um, It was not of their own volition at all. Mm, See, I I think with Arsenal, it's different, because I think that with... I, I think the difference is that Conte really is a, 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 a tactically kind of, you know, forward thinking manager, not in the sense that his teams attack, but in the sense that he's tactically very, very, very well respected. He's, you know, you don't walk into the Premier League in your first season and win it against Guardiola, against Mourinho, unless on some level, you know what you're doing. He really knows what he's doing. And I think with Wenger, it's slightly different. I think that with Wenger, you wonder whether they were instructed or whether they just, they had no instruction, literally, which is why they didn't know what to do. Because that's what it looked like to me. I, th- I felt like when I watched Arsenal, and we'll talk about it later, because I know that you want to you talk a little bit about Arsenal later, but for me, they look rudderless. And I don't necessarily agree that the performance that Chelsea put in against City stank of a side that are rudderless or that have down tools. No, I will kind of counter that though by just on a specific point of um, Conte knowing what he's doing. Of course, that is the case. But when it comes to the game against City, you do have to question the logic of playing long balls up to Eden Hazard, who's entirely isolated. I think I mean, there's a yeah, totally made I, no I, sense to me. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, and I think that there's there's absolutely a selection conversation in terms of going. That's Maratta is in his element playing mm. like that on the counter-attack. And yet, you know, he just, he, I don't know, it was a, it's, it's a, it's, his team selection was more baffling than his tactics for me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, just to, to kind of finish off with the uh, initial issue, which is, you know, that City possibly don't get as much credit as they deserve. What I would say is that it's not an issue for me personally, precisely because it's become an issue. By which I mean that if no one was talking about it, it would absolutely drive me insane, you know, because it is clearly there. And, and you know, as you alluded to earlier, it, it, it's a purposeful kind of mandate by the media because, you know, they're doing this on purpose, quite frankly. Yep. Um, and so it would drive me insane that no one's mentioned it. But so many City fans are bringing it to everyone's attention on social media and elsewhere that if I kind of can sit back and think, okay, that's good. It's being mentioned. As long as it's being mentioned, that's okay. Because the actual thing in itself is not annoying. It's just that if, you know, it went unnoticed, that's what would be annoying. And, and I have to say, on, on a wider note, this season, I think City fans have been fantastic on social media in illustrating kind of, um, I don't want to use any exaggerated terms here, kind of, you know, unfairnesses brought yeah. against them. about Injustices. Their, yeah, uh, yeah, kind of injustice against their club. They're bringing it to the media's attention, saying this isn't right. No, no, actually, this isn't right. And I think the two 
two things for that, two reasons. One is just how brilliant City fans are. And I'm not blowing smoke up anyone's backside there. I just believe that they are. Um, and two, because we're winning, we can get away with it. It has more substance. If we're losing every week, if we're struggling, and you're like Arsenal fans right now on Twitter, if they're having to go to journalists, the journalist is just scoffing back at them. Well, mm. you're Arsenal fans. You know, you're in crisis. Of course, you've got a problem with a perceived injustice in an article I've written. But if you're winning every week and you're still saying to journalists, hang on, you really, that's not fair that, where you've betrayed us there, then it, you know, it's worthy of note there. So, yeah, yeah on a, in a general point, I would say that um, City don't get the credit they deserve. It's just, it's kind of understandable to an extent. Um, if, it, if it persists, then I think, we, you know, we've got a problem. I don't think it will persist because I think that it, it it's about a moment in time. Mm, I think that I once we win that title, the, the, there's there's something coming, and I think the thing that's coming is this whole this derby and the winning the title around it. Whether it's you see what I'm saying, and I think that once we reach that point and the title's won, whether it's won before the derby and they've got to give us a guard of honor, or whether it's won in the derby or whether it's won the match after the derby, the point is that once the title is won, I think people will then begin to reflect within the media in all seriousness at the the achievements of, of Guardiola. And I think the other thing to acknowledge is that the media know what they're doing. So I know, for example, the Guardian podcast, which I listened to this week, they kind of started by saying that somebody's written in and said, you know, we're focusing too much on the negatives of other sides and not the positives of City. And they sort of laughed and went, yeah, we probably are because we focused a lot on City earlier in the season. And I think they even went on to acknowledge this idea that, and what are we going to say? You know, maybe people are afraid that this City side are going to be dominant, not just this season, but for years to come while Guardiola's at the club. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I, I'm, I think hiring Pep was what the club, what Abu Dhabi needed to, if they wanted to elevate the club again beyond the, the place that they'd gotten it to. And I feel that elevation is going on right now. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. It doesn't bother me. Let's put it that way. No, and just to kind of end, it was something me and Howard talked about a couple of weeks ago on this same part that, you know, on a wider, uh, you know, widening the picture, it is incumbent on City to, to at least reach a Champions League final in the next three years. Yeah. You know, as regards to what we're specifically talking about here and getting kind of acclaim and, and you know, praise from the media, that it will be a stick that it's beat at us. If we go out in, you know, the last sixteen quarterfinal, quarterfinal, for example, um, so for a city to be regarded as the great team that I believe they already are, but have yet to, you know, cement that with with silverware, I think the Champions League becomes much more important next season, the season after, not this season, this season, winning the league, winning the league cup, yes, please, you know, that's that as first steps go, that is a significant first step, okay. Um, but yeah, I think the Champions League is going to play a, a big part. Can I take you on one quick digression? I've got a question for you. Um, mm. Just to, to, to sticking on the theme of you know City getting credit, let's say that we get Real Madrid in the next round of the Champions League and we dismantle Real Madrid. Do you think that the media will then focus on the achievement that it is for City? Or do you think that the media will then take the point of view that Madrid have finished 
this Madrid side is actually finished and Zidane's not a great coach. And you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that that basically, the I find it interesting. And the reason I ask it is because I've got a sneaky suspicion. It's the interesting that with Juventus and with Real Madrid, because they both went through, there was this narrative of like, history counts for everything. Yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 you know, doesn't matter what you say about how their domestic season is going when it comes to the two. You know, there's the, they, they know really, how to win. Yeah. yeah, they know how to win. They built it up as something. All right, I'll take all that on face value. If they either of those sides get City in the next round and they get beaten, will how do you then, what's the narrative then? Is the narrative that City have arrived or what do you think? Mm, I, I think patriotism will, will come into play and, and just a, a recognition of the readership because oh, the readership okay. will be far more interested in the British side and have far more knowledge of the British side um, than the Spanish side, no matter, you know, I don't mm. talk about Real Madrid here. So I, I think in that inst- instance, it will be a case where City will get a lot of praise. I may be proved wrong, but, um, you know, let's hope I am proved wrong because that would be the City of battered Real Madrid. Mm. Okay. So if we move on to talking of the Champions League, a nice segue there from an experienced host such as myself (laughs) three days after our um let's say tremendous victory against chelsea and underrated by uh the media we face basel now this was a very rare occurrence for me because i'm somewhat of a pessimist when it comes to my club 10 minutes in 15 minutes in i was arrogant i was watching this game and i was kind of just like it was, um, you know, a, a theme park ride or, you know, just pure entertainment. It was like, oh, who's Pep going to bring on? And, and who's, you know, oh, I can't wait till later when Diaz is on because he's going to be, like, entwining with kind of Foden and we've got Uncle Yaya behind him. This is going to be so much fun, this game. 5-0 written all over it. I was thinking all these ridiculous thoughts. And then it happened. We we lost our fourth game of the season. Um, like, so my question to you is, what do you attribute it the defeat to, and how much did Dar midfield play a part in that? Um, hmm. it's 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 a difficult it's a difficult game to analyse. Um, but my feeling is that it, we lost because of the midfield. We didn't play well because of the midfield. I think that both individually and collectively. Um, Torre and, and, and Gundogan didn't do enough for me. Mm. Um, and I think that the those positions, I think that that's the interesting thing about that match. I think that the midfield three is more important for me than the attacking three in terms of winning games. Because I think that if that midfield three functions, the chances will come for the attacking three. And I think that if the midfield three don't function... The chances the, the the attacking three have to then just create their own chances out of nothing, which I think is a much 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 more tiring and and physically exerting and mentally exerting thing um, mm. in Guardiola's system. And I think that that's what we saw on Wednesday. We saw a, a case of the midfield not doing what they need to do to help the attacking three, and the attacking three sort of being like. What are we going to do here? I think that Sane did his. Yeah, you he see what I mean. Alone, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. it's as if he realised Sane quite early on and thought, okay, well tonight I'm just going to get my head down and, yeah. and be more individual, individualistic than he has been all season. Yeah, and I think that that's probably you know, 
I think that this this Guardiola team will always be a very, very delicately balanced machine. Yeah. yeah. And I think that being a delicately balanced machine, what that means is that you only need to be 5% off. You only need one player, one cog in the machine to be 5 or 10% off. And the whole machine won't function as efficiently. And when the whole machine doesn't function efficiently, the difference between us and Chelsea or Marine, uh, or, or United and Mourinho sides is that their managers, when the thing isn't functioning instinctively, they'll go, right, everybody back up. Because if everybody backs up, even if we're not functioning, we're not going to lose this game. Mm. Pep re- simply refuses to mm-hmm. do that. And he expects his players to problem solve on the pitch in the moment to ensure that they begin to function again. And he's got very little, well, he's got no time for the, the idea that today they're not performing. So safety has to come first. How do you feel about that, actually? Oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. I mean, it gives gives me palpitations galore, but um, <laughs> you know, I'm more than happy to have those palpitations because of what it produces on the days when we do perform. Yeah, uh, I, I would say I completely agree with you, and I think it wasn't just the front three, but the back four as well. What suffered as a consequence of um, yeah. our underperforming midfield. They looked at sea our defence at times, and of course they have to take responsibility for that. But by the same token. I think you can kind of attribute it to, I, I don't know, kind of make Yaya a scapegoat. Um, and I think he has been made too much of a scapegoat in the last few days as well by some City fans. But it does bring it home to me what a different side we are with Yaya in it presently. And that's not altogether a good thing. To be honest, mate, if you've got Bravo behind you and Yaya in front of yes. you, then you've got that, that back four are going to be nervous as hell. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, I think the fact that I've seen everybody in the back four be blamed for, for both the goals. Do, mm. do you see what I mean? That I've yeah. seen, I've seen shouts that it's Danilo's fault, it's Stones' fault, it's Laporte's fault, and it's Zinchenko's fault for both the goals. So I think that kind of shows that the whole thing, sort of fell apart in a way, if that makes sense. The, the kind of, the defensive structure seemed to to fall apart. Um, I think the only thing I would say though, is that I'm not convinced that that game, that I, I'm not sure that that game was that poor simply because the players that we brought in aren't good enough. I do think there was an element, a big element of, them feeling like, especially after Jesus's goal so early, just yeah. sort of feeling like this is over. We they we don't have to do anything here, um, and it. I think that that was dangerous, but we got we got away with it. Well, let's kind of bring in a couple of questions off Twitter on this because it directly kind of relates to what we're talking about. So, I guess now is the time to bring them in. Blue Wolf 1894 asks if our second string is good enough. Uh, three of our four defeats this season have come from when we've employed our kind of periphery of our squad. Um, is that a concern for you that, you know, when we do um, bring in the periphery, we do tend to struggle? No, because I think that we have very specific uh, issues in 
two very specific positions that are key. And we just talked about them, the goalkeeper and the player who sits in front of the back four. I think that if personally, I feel Bravo undermines the back four in that they simply don't play with any confidence or any sense of security when he's behind them. Um, And I think that Torres sort of, you know, it's, it's difficult to know, like I don't like like again the idea that Yaya Torre is finished. I'm like Yaya Torre will sign for another Premier League club next season, yeah, and he'll do things, and we'll go, oh, to say mm. he's finished is wrong. Yeah, he's he might well be past the point where he can play in a Guardiola side in that position. I think that's fair to say. Um, but I don't know if he's finished. But to go back to to, to Mike's question, um, I, I don't think it's a second string issue as it's an issue of... Because I think also earlier in the season, Bernardo Silva was part of the second string and Gundogan was part of the second string. And we felt that their performances weren't having the impact that they need to have. Yeah, but definitely. now you look at those two guys and you're going, I feel as though they're on the borderline of being in the best 11. So again... It, that's been removed. I think that specifically, if you talk about Danilo and Zinchenko, they're the backup fullbacks. Again, I mean, they've performed in huge games at a top level. So it would be it would be harsh to turn around and go, well, they're not good enough. I think the reality is that where we've where things have gone badly wrong, I think it's that that position in front of the back four and and the goalkeeper. And also before we had Laporte and Vinny was injured, the instability in the back line in general, in the in the in the in the two center halves, and the fact that we're now in a position where effectively Guardiola can rest in certain games and you know have four top defenders to pick from also changes that dynamic a little bit as well. So for me, I don't think it's a case of, I don't think, I think it's too simplistic to say the second string isn't good enough. What about yeah. you? Well, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I absolutely agree on the actual positions that you, you mentioned there as well. And, you know, we'll be looking to improve that in the summer. Um, and we already have in one instance. Um, my feelings towards it are if you bring in one or two of these players, if you look at the other lineup on on Wednesday, and you bring one or two into our strongest eleven, we are not weakened in any way. It's when you do it wholesale, but the same goes for pretty much every club in the history of football. So that doesn't overly concern me at all. I know that you know the whole kind of um, cliche about great modern clubs is that they've got twenty two brilliant footballers. Um. There will always be a slight decline, and what I'm not just talking about quality there. I'm talking like if you look looking at Foden, you know it's his youth what goes against him. Nothing else. The, mm. the lad is going to be absolute quality. He's going to be a world beater, but right now he's 17 years of age. So when I say decline, I don't mean that they're inferior in talent, um, and yet in some cases, yes, I am because you know I'm not entirely comfortable when Bravo's in goal. Um, mm. Even when you can see he's actually having a good night, he's just always one minute away from from doing a bravo. So, um, yeah, I, I think if you if you 
change one or two players, that's great. If you change eight or nine, you're going to struggle. And the same goes for, you know... Anybody. Yeah, the Manchester United team of the 90s, the kind of Real Madrid team, whatever great teams you want to say uh, of the modern era. So I'm not overly concerned. I mean, let's just kind of bring in another question here because you mentioned him um, a couple of minutes ago on the matter of Zinchenko. I mean, I, I'm a fan, but I really was a bit concerned by his performance on Wednesday. He'd looked, he'd, well, as I said before, he looked all at sea. Um, Seven Svenen asked what the future holds for Zinchenko. Will he have a part to play next season at City? Salmon and Howard discussed this um, in the review pod yesterday, I believe, as well. Uh, and it was interesting to hear. I, I think that I want him to play a part, but to keep it relatively simple, I don't think that he will because mm. as, I think that the I think the problem that Guardiola will have is that he'll acknowledge all the talent that Zinchenko has got, and then he'll go, it's not fair for me to keep him here as third-choice left-back which is pretty much what he is and the only position within which he's going to get a game at City because the his actual position is where KDB, David Silva, Bernardo Silva, Ilkay Gundogan and Phil Foden play. So he's not going to get in ahead of all those players. And the most important thing is to make sure there's room for Foden to develop in that position over the next few years. So I think for those reasons... I think it's more likely that he ends up moving on in the summer. But I don't think that it's, I don't, personally, I don't think that's a reflection upon uh, his ability. And I, I, I would almost go so far as to say that if Delph wasn't English and you had those two players with exactly the same characteristics, I suspect that Guardiola would keep Zinchenko and let Delft go. I think I, I go along with that. I, I think it's kind of an entirely positive situation. Totally. Even if he, move, even if he moves on. I mean, totally. he's a very popular figure amongst City fans. He's a very popular figure amongst his teammates. Uh, considering the cost of a lad, um, he has more than kind of warranted his, his fee. He'll move on to another top club and he'll excel there because he's a very talented boy. And he'll always be regarded highly by Blues. So, you know, I think right across the board, aside from the fact that, you know, it would be sad to see him move on. But overall, it's a positive development all around, I think. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree with that. So let's move away from the Etihad for a moment and look ahead to uh, quite a big fixture tomorrow. Um <laughs> In the past, it's been two bald men fighting over a comb, but there does seem to be quite a lot riding on this. It's a battle for second place. Uh, starting with Liverpool, the visitors tomorrow. Um, a little clip did the rounds on social media this week, which you may have saw, where Steven Gerrard was asked... Oh, my uh, God. Oh, my God. Oh, and, um, talk about this. Amazing. But Just having to say it out loud makes me cringe. He was asked whether Mohamed Salah is the best African footballer in Premier League history. Now, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but I think his words were, yeah, I think you're going to have to say that he is. So what do you think then, Aysan? Do you think that Salah is the best African footballer in Premier League history? I don't even know to, where to begin with, <laughs> with, 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 that, with that answer, with the answer to that question, because I think that, um, I mean, we as City fans know what Yaya Torre brought to the Premier League 
what he did for the club and the trophies that he won and his his pedigree before he came to us and the legacy that he will leave when he leaves. Mm. I suspect that uh, Gerard, if he thinks about it, will be well aware of Torre's legacy. Now, look, if Torre's legacy sticks in his throat and he doesn't want to acknowledge what Yaya Torre has done, I think you've got to look at two players from Mourinho's first Chelsea team, Drogba and Essien. Absolutely. Absolute colossuses. Yeah. 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 Four times Premier League winners. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm I'm sorry. I I couldn't even hold back. Sorry. I I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, go. go. Didier Drogba has won the Premier League four times. He's African Football of the Year twice. Yaya Toure, African Football of the Year four times. He's won the Premier League twice. Mares at Leicester has, has made more impact on the Premier League than Salah has. He, he along with Vardy, created an absolute fairy tale, the most unlikeliest title winners in, in history. He scored 24 goals this season, Salah. He's a tremendous player. When they signed him, I knew he was a very good player. Now I, I regard him as being an extraordinarily good player. Very impactful as well, you know? Um, his his strike rate this season is a goal every 92 minutes, which betters Aguero's, from considering his wide position. That's a, that's a tremendous achievement. We're in March. He's he's won nothing. He's he's just had a good eight months of football. For goodness sake, how can you possibly compare that to Yaya Torre's achievements at Manchester City or Didier Drogba's or Essien's at Chelsea? This is a pundit who is supposed to be employed because of his vast knowledge of the not not football but of the Premier League. Ah, I when I saw that clip, I laughed my head off first three times I saw it. Then it just started to sink in. And when I saw it the fourth and fifth time, I was like, good God. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, uh, I, I guess that I, it didn't, it doesn't wind me up because I'm just like, hilarious. These guys are just, you know, <laughs> I guess, yeah. It's one of them where it's just like, I don't think that Yaya Torre is going to lose any sleep over Steven Gerrard. So <laughs> I don't think that, that Drogba's going to lose any sleep over it. I don't think Essien's going to lose any sleep over it. And in a way, I don't think that we should, but I, I, I believe that he said this on BT Sport. Is that correct? It is, yes. Right. So BT Sport themselves, who I believe have lost a lot of subscribers to their football service, should yeah. probably ask themselves why they're losing those subscribers and then look at the content that they put out because yeah, things like that will turn people off. That kind of, it, it's just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it, it's, I suppose the thing is that it's the, it's the bias within it. It's the idea that, you know, you've got Mr. Liverpool saying our African is the greatest African that's ever played in this league. And it's just like, come on, man. Like, you know, on LFC TV, fine, you can say that. But yeah, exactly when you go that. when you go to BE Sport, at least attempt to show that you have knowledge that extends beyond your love of Liverpool. Well, what got me was his initial reaction, was, which was kind of a blow of the cheeks and, oof, you haven't given me a lot of time to think about that. Basically implying that, you know, he wasn't kind of giving it the, the question to ponder beforehand and do some research. This is a question you do not need research for. No, not at all. Not at all. Anyway, moving on to their opponents uh, tomorrow lunchtime, Manchester United. Right, let's, let's ask this question then, shall we? <laughs> Does Josie Mourinho 
actually deserve some credit for the season that they're having. After all, it's a perfectly respectable point haul that compares favourably to the Sir Alex Ferguson era. They're still in the Champions League, they're still in the FA Cup. Yeah, if you looked around and heard all the kind of, you know, pub talk and, and media talk, you would be under the assumption that United are underachieving quite considerably this season. Uh, is that the case? Do, do you think Mourinho gets a bit of a, um, you know, an, an unfair kind of treatment, courtesy of the media? Is it possible that the answer to this question is both yes and no? <laughs> yeah, perfectly possible. Because, I, yeah, I mean, you know... I think that I hate the guy, right? You know that. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows that. And yeah, I mean, I I don't ever want to say anything good about Mourinho, but I think at the same time, you have to acknowledge the fact that they're second. And I think that, you know, the fact that they're still second, having, to my eyes, played some of the worst football in the top half of the table at times. Actually, top half of the table is maybe a bit harsh, but certainly in the top six. Um, I think it's 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 an achievement, um, but at the same time, I think that you have to apply the same. You know, if you, for example, Spurs go out of Champions League, and the context is, look, Spurs can't compete with those sides, and if you look at the the wage bills and the money that. The United, the Chelsea's, the Liverpool, uh, yeah, even Liverpool, they spend on wages and on 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 transfer fees. Then, then it's kind of acceptable that they that they've sort of gone out when when they have. That context is applied to kind of excuse um, a level of underperformance. I think that contextually speaking, for Mourinho, the amount of money that he spent and the fact that he's been there the same amount of time as. Uh, Guardiola has been at City. I think they're really underachieving because from a footballing point of view, they have literally no identity. If you watch a United yeah. game, that it's... I mean... Again, this Mourinho thing... Mourinho confounds me. One of the reasons that he confounds me is that if I think about Mourinho's first Chelsea team, they were masterfully coached. You know, that they... they, they they, they looked like a team who had an answer for everything. And that's why they were so formidable and they were so difficult to play against. Man United don't seem to have the answer to anything. Like, you know, whether they play Stoke or they play Chelsea, their problems remain the same. And mm. I, I think I, that's that's got to be a worry. If you're a United fan, that's... That's got to be a big worry. And I think that the identity can be a, um, it's a little bit like philosophy and the idea that those things can become cliches. You know, football's about winning and losing. And I'm sure that Mourinho will say, asked about identity, we're winning, we're second, we're still in the Champions League. But I think where identity is important is in when things are going right and you're winning, you don't need an identity. You need an identity when your back's against the wall. Your players need to know what to do when they're having an off day. And I think that that's the thing that, like, even if you look at City's game against Baal, like, a lot of those players were having an off day and it was some second string players. 
but they know everybody knows what they're meant to do and what positions they're meant to be in and in, when they're in each area of the pitch what they're meant to do they're heavily coached and that means that even though we the performances aren't at the right level you can you remain in a game and you remain competitive and I th- and you, at no point do you sort of look united can look at sixes and sevens against not great opposition against mid-table opposition. And that's, yeah, does, does that make sense what I'm saying to you, Steve? I completely agree. I, I think um, the aspect that you're referring to has not been talked about enough this season. It has been mentioned, I've seen it elsewhere. Nowhere near enough. Um, people kind of have simplified it and, and um, talked about kind of, you know, the unambitious approach by United and that, you know, horrible phrase, parking a bus and all the rest of it. And, no, I, I think it comes down to identity. I think it's shocking how little identity United have. And I think you're absolutely bang on by referring back to the Chelsea team uh, under Mourinho, which was, they were formidable. They Not only did they know exactly what they were doing, you know what they were going to do, but there was no way to counter it. Now what have United got? I don't know who they are anymore. Um, I don't know what they represent they, they seem to fall between kind of plan A and plan B, just fall down the crack in between the two. Uh, and that goes for kind of, not just kind of lineups and selection, but individually too, the players, you know, as a consequence, don't have full instinctive trust in what they're doing because the whole time we seem to be unsure of what they're doing. It, mm. it, it's it's a weird, weird scenario. Um and I, 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 re, I swear on my life, I'm not saying this to kind of take out away anything from United and to have a little jibe at them, but I really believe that them being in second place is a damning reflection on the quality of the Premier League this, this year. I don't know about that, you know. I see what you're saying, but I, I think that's a bit. I think that's a bit harsh, and I, I, I would have said that a couple of months ago as well, and I've kind of changed my mind, and I'll tell you why I've changed my mind because I guess what we have to acknowledge in amongst all of the sort of the lack of planning and the the, the flaws that United have got, yeah? Mm. They still have got a lot of players who are just much, much better than the other. Absolutely, but that's getting them out of the hole, though. Yeah, but but that's what I mean. But that, that will get you, like, I think that, I think at a certain level, like, how do I, how do I explain this? Like, for example, Barcelona, yeah? Barcelona under Valverde, they can be, it doesn't matter how good or bad they are because the players that they've got will get them out most holes. And I think that at Man United, it's a very, very similar situation because I think that that also the characteristics of those players that dig them out of holes, I think that Martial, Lingard, Rashford, Sanchez now, Lukaku, even Pogba, I think these, they're not necessarily guys who I would consider to be mentally strong or, you know, anything like that. But I think that they are guys who, when they feel, right, it's my turn to flat track someone, they'll do it. Yeah. So, and I, and I think because of that, it's not as damning an indictment of the league. I think what I think, where I think it's, what it's a damning indictment of, I think it's a damning indictment of the, the teams uh, in and around United. I think uh, in particular, I think that uh, if you look, I think Chelsea United uh, uh, last weekend was uh, just huge. It was an enormous, enormous game. And I think that actually 
it was a sliding doors moment because for me, if Chelsea win that game, the wheels come off at Man United. But And I felt going into that game that if it's a draw, nothing changes. But if one of these two teams wins, whoever loses, the wheels come off because that top four is so delicately poised. Well, it's very interesting you say that, actually, because I, I considered the very same thing about this weekend's fixtures. Um, you look at United, Liverpool, let's face it, I could go either way. Uh, you look at Chelsea at home to Palace and you have to favour Chelsea there. Um, so should Chelsea uh, overcome Palace, then, and, and if Liverpool get results at, at Old Trafford, suddenly there is a top four battle still in place. Whereas if, if you know if United win this weekend, um, or if if Chelsea you know get a draw and, and don't get the three points, we could be looking at you know kind of mid March the top four race is over, mm. but it's just determining you know on what those positions will be within that top four. So I think it's a really key weekend of a season as regards the Champions League spots for the, uh, the weekend to come. Interesting. Do you think if you look at the Liverpool United game? It's inter- it's an interesting matchup because I think that Liverpool do have an identity. I think that they're the that yeah. Liverpool are the nearest team to City. I think in 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 the where they are in terms of their evolution. Yeah, I think that they they've got an identity. It's very clear. The players know the system. They know what they're meant to do. They might not execute it well every time, but in they they know what to do in all aspects in all phases of of, of a game. I completely agree with that, yeah. Who do you think a draw who do you think a draw suits more? And yeah, who do you think a draw suits more out of Liverpool well, and United? It's it's well that's a really hard one to call because a draw for United will suit them just fine. You have a two points clear of, of Liverpool, but obviously got no chance of catching City. Um, so that will suit them just fine. This will this will be you know without question one of the hardest challenges they've got from now until the end of the season, apart from us as well. Um, whereas a draw for Liverpool, in terms of kind of uh, strategic accumulation of points for, for you know to, to finish second place, that's not a great result for them a draw. But it's still a draw at Old Trafford. It's still a draw against Manchester United. It's still ensuring that they haven't gone four points clear or five points clear. So it's a really hard one to call to say he'll be most happiest. I mean, I'll kind of throw the question back at you, because, you know, the possibility of a draw and the possibility of, of a, a nullifying draw as well, as we've seen earlier on this season. This is the most watched football fixture across the globe. Tracks a huge amount of interest, a huge amount of hype. Now we've seen precisely two really good games in this in this fixture in the last twenty years. It never fails, apart from those two occasions, to disappoint. It just always does. Mm. Do you think we're overdue a thriller? Do you think that uh, I've seen a quote from Klopp this week uh, this week, which is quite interesting, where he's talking about the midfield and. Um, you know what? What, he, what is he was hinting at what his plans were basically that they're going to go at United is what he was essentially saying. Could we be looking at a long overdue thriller? I don't know about I don't know about a thriller, but I think that um, this Liverpool team, the form that they're in, the players that they've got, the manager that they've got, they're well equipped to go to Old Trafford and take United apart. And mm. I think that they 
need the three points if they want to finish. I don't, I'm not necessarily convinced that Jurgen Klopp will think that finishing second and above United is important. I think for them, finishing in the top four, ideally second or third, so you don't have to play the qualifier, is, is the most important thing. Having said that, I think that he'll know that United are good at flat tracking teams. That's why they're second. So if you want to jump above them, you've got to use the big games. Yeah. So I think they will have looked at the Chelsea game that weekend as an opportunity in terms of we win first and then the pressure's on United. But United have then beaten Chelsea. So over to you then, Jürgen. It's now a question of how do you approach this game at Old Trafford? And, and I think... I think because of the Chelsea result, it almost becomes a free hit for Klopp because it's caught Chelsea adrift in terms of the the top four. They've got some distance now. So they can go to Old Trafford and, and themselves open up and try and beat United because even if that doesn't come off, I don't think there's any danger of Liverpool not finishing in the top four. Yeah, so essentially what you're saying is they've got a free shot at United this weekend. More or less, and I think that, you know, for unfortunately for United fans, because United beat Chelsea last weekend, I think Mourinho will be... Uh, I, I feel that's why that Chelsea game was so huge, I felt, because I just... I think that for Mourinho, he's, he's walked a tightrope at United all season. And I think he's got... In moments, he's got the results that he's needed. In key moments, he's got the results that he's needed to sort of keep the pressure off him. And I think that that Chelsea game for me was sort of, a, like I say, it was a moment where whoever wins this, they 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 get themselves a breather. And I think that what it means for Mourinho is that going into the Liverpool game, he can park the bus again. Nobody's going to argue with him. He can stick do, 11 do, behind Do you think ball. he might? Oh, I think I think it's guaranteed. They're playing. Really? They're playing. Yeah, I think they're playing really poorly. That's the thing. Mourinho's not stupid. Even if they beat Chelsea, but they didn't play well against Chelsea. No, no. no. They, they I really quite agree with that. But I, I cannot see him parking a bus at Old Trafford against Liverpool. I mean, even from Mourinho, I'm not being naive. I just can't see it. Um, they're hardly going to be kind of. We're hardly going to witness open attacking football. Um, but I just think there'll be a, a middle ground they'll deploy on this occasion. I think if he tries to deploy that middle ground, they'll get turned over badly because, I, again, like I, I go back to this idea that Mourinho is incredibly calculated and he is not a stupid man. And therefore, he will know that currently his best midfield is Matic, Pogba and the the lad, uh, what's his name? The What's his name? I don't even know his name. The young lad who's who's apparently had a growth spurt and is now there, the other centre midfield. But those three in centre midfield, yeah, you saw what... Liverpool centre midfield, who we thought was weak. We saw what they did to us when we went yeah. to Anfield. Yeah, they ran us over uh, in periods of the game. Now, obviously, they're going to Old Trafford. But I think the difference is that United won't play with any of the intensity that City tried to play with. I think United could get turned over. If, if they leave any any kind of space, They'll Liverpool will, will exploit it. And I don't think Mourinho will leave any space. They'll leave nothing to chance. That's my vibe. Um, so not a thriller. We'll have to wait for another year. Well, it, for it to, I think for it to be a thriller, Liverpool have to score 
first and they have yes. to score in the first half. If Liverpool score first and they score in the first half, I think it's game on because Liverpool don't know how to defend. They are not, no, that's harsh. Liverpool are like City in that they only have one gear. Yeah. They don't really play in any other gear. And if they get that goal, it just, you know, there's maybe another gear up they can go, but there isn't a gear down they can go. And that's what will make the game interesting. Okay. Well, we were going to talk about Arsenal, but it's such a big subject in times against us. Um, and frankly, they're not going anywhere, Arsenal. But, you know, <laughs> the things we could discuss today, we can easily discuss another time because nothing's going to really change there. What I would like to discuss before we go is, well, it's mainly a clip I saw actually of Sam Allardyce, but, you know, broadening it to the bigger subject of his, his reign at, at Goodson Park. Now, he said he'd like to remain at Goodson for the long term. Evertonians clearly are not happy about this. Um, I, I can assume that you've got sympathy for Evertonians in this regard, but more than that, should the club just basically listen to the fans or, or you know, acknowledge the fans' disgruntlement at, at, at their appointments. Um, you can't imagine Allardyce being there next season and, and no. beyond, can you? No, no, uh, not at all. I mean, yeah, they do deserve much, much better um, from this new rich ownership. And I yeah. think that that's where the book stops. The book stops with the decision-making that's gone on since the change in ownership and the transfer policy and... It's just, I mean, they're they're a mess. And whenever I listen, whenever I hear Evertonians, they they, I feel my heart goes out to them. I, you know, grew up a City fan. I I can relate to, yeah, to what it's like to be an Evertonian. And and yeah, I mean, I just, in a weird way, when I listen to them, it really reminds me so much of Shinawatra's season of mm. ownership because there is we. As City fans, we went from the wild optimism of, of Sven's, you know, buying like eight players in the summer and a new team and going into December, we were in the top four and dreams about the Champions League and then the way that it all unraveled. And you feel as though at Everton, they never had the spike in terms of results. All they've had is loads of new players coming in, the optimism in the summer, and then just this season of, of utter failure and, and underachievement. Um, well, well the, the clip I, I mentioned at the start, I alluded to, um, I don't know if you've seen it, it was um, after the Burnley game and Allardyce was asked about um, criticism from the fans and and he smirked. I don't, have you seen that clip? I have. Yeah, well, I mean, really, I don't have a question for you. I, I just like to announce the existence of this clip on a podcast, and hopefully anyone listening to this will check it out. It's disgusting. He's a knobhead, and yeah. he doesn't care. And he, 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 you know, the thing with Allardyce is that Allardyce represents more or less everything that bothers me about <laughs> the very Britishness of a yeah. lot of British football and people around British football. Because it's like, you know, the dude is driven by money, right? He's not driven by anything but money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, he, reti he, what, he retired when with the whole England thing happened and then he came out of retirement and he, he took the Everton job and and, and he's, he's not shown anything of, for all the, you know, if my name was foreign, yeah, I'd, I'd get big jobs, I'd get the Real Madrid job and all of that sort of stuff. 
whenever Allardyce has been faced with decent players, he's certainly maybe in his Bolton days, you could argue he had some decent players and they played some decent stuff. But since then, I've never seen an Allardyce team play anything other than dog shit football. And this Everton team has got much better players and it's a much better squad than it's showing. And he doesn't care. And that's for me, the root of what you're talking about there with that smug smile when he's asked about how the supporters feel. If I was an Evertonian, I'd be, uh, you know, I, I just wouldn't go for the rest of the season. I wouldn't turn up. But yeah. like he's, you know, that's the only way well, that. I mean, you know, on that note, because I've got a lot of Evertonian fans, uh, you know, most of my kind of mates support Everton, and this is how bad the situation is. I think now is because I want them to lose at home to Brighton this weekend. Mm. You know, normally I, I kind of I'm quite happy when they win because my mates are happy. You know, vicariously, I'm quite happy for that. Uh, I want them to lose because it's in the best interest of Everton Football Club and its supporters. If they lose, you know, in, in the weeks ahead, if if they struggle, because I they don't. Go on. Well, I was going to say there is a chance that Allardyce could be there next season. I don't think so. I I, I think I think the one thing that you've got to give Ken Wright and uh, Moshiri, whatever his name is, credit for, is that uh, they are just about fickle enough. <laughs> to, no, it's, I'm serious. Yeah, They're just about yeah. fickle enough that they'll listen to the supporters. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think that there are some, there's a lot of owners who are completely intransigent, yeah, and could care less about what the supporters think. But when instinctively, if I look at Ken Wright and, and Moshiri and the way that they've operated, you can't help but feel that the way this is unfolding. I, I personally, I sort of feel like if Allardyce gets another bad result, they might just end up flicking him now. Well, I, I have considered that possibility myself. Um, you know, hence why I, I would actually be kind of supporting Brighton this weekend for that for that faint possibility. Um, but yeah, I can see it happening. He is that unpopular at Goodson. Um, so the owners really, where do you go? What are, I mean, you can't imagine them getting relegated at this point. And it's, particularly if you get you know a new manager in and a new manager bounce that often occurs. Um, yeah, we could say that they've had that twice for all this season because Allardyce actually started fairly well. So, yeah, I, that's personally what I would do. Uh, I think there's a lot of logic to that. Just get him out. He's a rotten apple. The fans are really unhappy. And I think if he stays to the end of the season, uh, I agree with you, by the way. I don't think he'll be there next season. I just think there's a possibility that he might. Because I think what it ultimately will come down to with Bill Kenwright would be season ticket sales. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's a quite a depressing subject to end on because um, you know we wish him well. We've had a lot of um, giving to with with uh, back into with Everton fans down the years. Uh, we've had some great encounters and stuff, but ultimately, uh, as you as you said earlier, there's a lot of affiliation there too, isn't there? Because you know we've both spent a long time in kind of red shadows, exactly in our history. So, exactly. Um, exactly. They, they don't deserve big fat Sam Allardyce. No, definitely not. Um, listen, one thing that I, I want to ask you is uh, just looking forward to, to City's game against Stoke. Mm. How how do we uh, approach... I mean, uh, when I say how do we approach this game, I guess what I mean is that is there absolutely any danger of complacency? So basically what I'm trying to say is that there was... I don't think there was complacency in 
the performance against Baal. I don't think there was conscious complacency. I think that the reality is, like I said, is that Jesus scores that goal and they just sort of felt, it was almost as if the game itself was an exhibition game and that the result was already decided, right? In a similar fashion, what, what I keep thinking about is that if, if it's a draw between United and Liverpool tomorrow, what's yeah. the gap? You, you see what I mean? That then suddenly, is there a chance of complacency in that the City players almost go into that game against Stoke just sort of being like, well, this is Stoke. They're the most nothing team in the Premier League since they, you know, invented nothing teams in the Premier League. <laughs> uh we're Man City and we're 19 points ahead or whatever it is, or we will be 19 points ahead. If we, you, you see what you see what I'm driving at here, because yeah, I can't see it, mate. I can't see it. And irrespective of it being Stoke, um, which whatever our fixtures are from here until the season's end, I cannot see complacency setting in for, for a second. I, I may be proven wrong, but I genuinely believe that this side has had it drummed into them by Pep from early on as well. You boys can create history this season. You can break all these records. You can kind of amaze the world. And they are determined to do so. So their opponents are absolutely irrelevant. You know, whether it's Stoke away or whether it's Manchester United at home, I think the hunger's going to be there from now until the season's end to wallop United in terms of points difference, Mm. um, to smash the points record, to smash the goal-scoring record, they are really determined to do so. I mean, that's what I believe anyway. That's what I see in their, in their eyes. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about any complacency coming in, uh, going to Britannia Stadium. But the big concern for me is we are now at that stage of the season, the last quarter, where sides in the bottom kind of six can really turn you over, can really just, you know, raise, you know, play above themselves. Um, and so if that's the case, then it's going to be an immensely tricky encounter. Mm, yeah, I would I would go along with that. I think that in in terms of I think facing these sort of relegation threatened sides will actually probably keep us focused. Yes, Do you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it'll Pep's the kind of guy who will be you know drumming it into them that you know these these games are actually more complicated than anything else because you're fighting for your life and some of these players. I think that's the thing with relegation is that. You get to that point in the season where some of the players begin to realize that I'm going to, you know, I could get relegated here and then my salary is going to be cut in half next yeah. season. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And then suddenly you see a different kind of commitment and a different kind of. That's, of that's what gets me. I mean, I don't blame anyone for this. It's just how football is. But totally. that's, that's always what gets me when, when this happens and the players start to really, you know, Sunderland a couple of years ago as well, and they start really pulling out the bag, and, and the fans really get behind them and, and kind of praise the players. You think, well, firstly, these are the players who got you into this mess in the first in place. And secondly, they're not doing it for the love of the badge. They're doing it purely because they don't want their wages halved, and they don't totally. want to play against kind of Burton Albion next season. Totally. No, totally. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, they. I think for a lot of sides, they particularly in the Premier League, like the bigger clubs, um, or the historically bigger clubs, I think sometimes they can feel for a long time like, now nah, we're not going to get relegated. We'll be all right. And then when it, you know, when it looks real, then they've then they've kind of got to pull their their fingers out a little mm. bit. Um, yeah, it'll be it'll be it'll be an interesting. It's going to be an interesting next few weeks. I think. I think it'll be nice to have. We've got a break. We've got a two week ish break after yeah. Stoke, and I think that. 
that will be good for everybody. I think they're off to Abu Dhabi, aren't they? The players are off to Abu Dhabi, so there'll be lots of media commitments and. Um, yeah, it's come at a good time. Um, if, if they do it right, which I'm sure they will, in terms of their mentality, um, they can say that, let's just take stock of everything, let's see where we are. Right, we're here, we're here, we're here. This is what the challenge is. And, and basically, you know, to use a, a Liverpool expression, they go again. Yeah. So, yeah, I, th- I think it, we have been fortunate in that regard. I mean, personally, I believe it would be better to play in the Arsenal game in the free weekend, but that's by the by now, that's gone. Um so let's take advantage of it and let's just kind of regroup um, from, you know, a, a, a really heartbreaking defeat to ball. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think the, totally. And I think the, the, the final word that I want to say on, on, on this break in particular is that I think that it provided that we beat Stoke, I think the break will be very good because I, I think that what will happen is that during that break, everybody will be reminded that okay, when we get back, actually, yeah, there's what there's potentially five more games in the Champions League, yeah, mm. and there's how many league games to wrap it up? There's two. We'd have to win two, or th- we'd have to win three more. Um, yeah. So, so you've effectively got eight cup finals, and if you win those eight cup finals, you will win the European Cup and the Premier League. And I think that that's the, you know, that this is the moment, you know, managers say all season, we just go game by game. Yeah. And you always go, yeah, bollocks. No, you don't. You look at the next month and you look at what's important and what's not important. I suspect that what this break does is it allows everybody to sit down and go, right, now we do go game by game because it's literally, we just need to do this eight more times. And if we do it eight more times at the end of it, we'll create history for ourselves, for the club, for everybody. So I think the I break think comes at perfect time. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's bang on. It's I think throughout the course of a season, there are always key points. I mean, there's no coincidence that people start talking about the possibility of a quadruple around about the same time. Uh, and the same goes for, you know, before our first defeat, it was being invincibles. Um, it's because that is when the consciousness, the general consciousness, not just the club, not just the fans, but kind of the media and everyone, starts thinking, they can actually do this. This is the time now where during this break, the players will start thinking, right, it's there. It's on our doorstep now. It's within reach. Um, and it will really concentrate the mind. And yeah. yeah, so hopefully, like I say, as long as we do the trip right, not too many media commitments and a chance to kind of stretch your legs as well and enjoy themselves because, we, you know, quite frankly, they deserve that. Spot on. Wonderful. Um, well, thank you very much, sir. Um, I will now, well, I'll hand it over to you to do the wrapping up, if that's okay, and uh my, my hosting duties. <laughs> well, listen, thank you very much, Steve. Pleasure, mate. To everybody who listened, thank you very much. This was the Friday show on the 9320 pod. Um, if you haven't already subscribed to the 9320 player, go over to 9320.com, have a look at what we do, have a look at some of the shows you're into it it's four pounds a month you get loads of man city related podcasts if you're already a member look out during the break we are planning a special uh tactical podcast with marty perinow who is going to pick a couple of games from this season um to basically talk through the tactical evolution that there's been at City since Pep has come into the club and also just what changes Pep has made from from his time in Bayern. It will be absolutely fascinating as Marty always is. But yeah, we're going to try and do that during the during the international break. No, not the international break, the FA Cup break. Is that right, Steve? 
That's correct. It's an FA Cup break. Excellent. Okay, wonderful. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back very, very soon. In the meantime, up the blues.